Isaiah chapter 46. Um, the Lord has just finished that lengthy discussion and explanation through Isaiah about Cyrus and uh, how he was going to come and deliver Israel. Very controversial uh, passage in the scripture because it's so incredibly accurate in its depiction of what was going to happen in the future, particularly even naming Cyrus a hundred uh, more than 150 years before he was born. Um, you know, the critics want to say it's impossible. It had to have been written after all of those things transpired. And there's well-recorded history that it was written almost 200 years mm -hmm. before Cyrus was even born. So now the Lord shifts again to the issue of idolatry and the nation of Israel being engaged in idolatry. In particular, in verse 1, it says, Bel bows down and Nebo stoops. Uh, their idols were on the beasts and on the cattle. Their carriages were heavily loaded, a burden to the weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They could not deliver the burden, but have themselves gone into captivity. So uh, lo the Lord specifically names Bel and Nebo to uh, false gods that the people uh, worshipped. And they sort of branch out from there, but in particular, he's making this picture, which he builds on throughout this, of how you know they, the idols themselves aren't capable of doing anything, even simple tasks like carrying themselves. They have to be put on other animals. They have to be put in carts. And there's so many of them. There's so much idolatry in a nation that's not supposed to have any idols that it's actually become an impossible burden for even the animals of Israel. Uh, you know, the Lord is, is saying, you know, more or less, it's a ridiculous burden you're carrying. Of all the things that could be put onto your animals, your, your beasts of burden, you know, idols is the last and the dumbest thing you could be loading up, uh, you know. Family, food, uh, materials, uh, you know, thing, articles to worship the Lord. Any, anything would be so much better than this. And instead, they've burdened themselves and even their livestock with this so that they're all gone into captivity together. Everything is burdened by it. It's not just, you know, the, the people or the individuals who are worshiping. Now, you remember, here we are in you know, 46 verses 1 and 2. Remember, you can maybe even turn back to Isaiah chapter 45. And at verse 23, the Lord says, I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, meaning without being fulfilled, that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. Uh, these, the way the language is laid out these are related uh, the idea of 
every knee shall bow. And now in 46, that's essentially what the Lord is saying is that even the animals are bowing down. They're, they're, they're falling down because of their idolatry, because of the nation's idolatry. They're being forced to, even their animals are being forced to their knees through the process. So it's sort of a picture the Lord is painting of how now these idols are being brought low in humiliation. So continuing in verse 3, the Lord says, Listen to me, O house of Jacob. Interesting that uh, the Lord does this linguistic thing here again. Listen to me, O Jacob, specifically, not Israel, Jacob. Who do we know Jacob as? The heel catcher, the deceiver, the one who comes from behind. So listen to me, uh, Jacob. He starts with, and all the remnant of the house of Israel. Notice how none of the remnant is described as Jacob. They are described as Israel, governed by God. So the Lord is making a distinction here, saying you've really got two classes. Spiritually, you have two classes of people amongst you. Even though you're my people, my nation, you have two classes of people amongst you. One, those that are still living in rebellion to me. And two, those that have surrendered themselves to me who are the remnant. So both of these groups need to listen to the Lord who have been upheld by me from birth, who have been carried from the womb, even to your old age. I am he, and even the gray hairs, uh, even two gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, even I will carry and I will deliver. So the false gods must be carried. They have to be put on the carts. They have to be, you know, transported. In contrast, the true and living God carries those that worship him uh, all their lives in every situation. He doesn't falter. He doesn't fall down. He doesn't leave off the process. God is carrying those that are his own. I find it so interesting that he starts with that statement about Jacob and Israel. You're both mine, and I'm going to carry you all the way to the finish line. You might be rebellious. You might not be cooperating with me, but I chose you. The Lord has always put the burden of accomplishment on himself. From the very beginning, in the arrangement and agreement with Abraham, as he says to him, we're going to cut a covenant together. Prepare these animals and wait until I'm able to to come and we'll perform this sacrifice together as a sign of our covenant. Abraham isn't capable of doing it. He sacrifices the animals, cuts them in half. He's waiting to meet the Lord in the midst, but the day wanes on and the birds come to try to pick at the carcasses and he's driving them off and he falls asleep in the midst of it. And when he awakens, the Lord is passing through, King James Version, like an oven like a raging fire, the midst of these sacrifices that have been split in half, and they are just being burned up. The point is, Abraham fell asleep and was unable to perform even his own portion of the agreement. 
God comes through and he consumes both sides of the sacrifices that have been made. One man doesn't get to put things on the altar and burn them and then God do his portion. God consumes it all. You know, we're saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. All through this process, right? People come to me and talk to me about the introduction of grace in the New Testament like it didn't exist in the Old Testament. And as we discuss it, there's a, a misunderstanding in a lot of Christians to think that, oh, in the Old Testament they were under law, in the New Testament were under grace. Guess what? In the Old Testament we were under grace. Abraham was saved by grace. Salvation has always been through grace. <laughs> you know, Paul tells us specifically the law is put there as a taskmaster, a school teacher, to lead us to Christ, to lead us to grace. So here the Lord is saying, go ahead, pursue your idolatry. You know, be Jacob or Israel. I'm going to carry you to the finish line. I'm the one who accomplishes all this work. I'm the one who doesn't falter in the process. 46.5, to whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me? that we should be alike. They lavish gold out of the bag, weigh silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith and make it a god. They prostrate themselves. Yes, they worship. They bear it on the shoulder. They carry it and set it in its place. And it stands from its place. It shall not move. No one cries out to it. Yet it cannot answer nor save him out of his troubles. You know, all of these resources and time that is poured into idolatry in the ancient world and today. It's just amazing how much people pour into their method of worship. That which comforts them, that which, you know, they think provides for them. You know, God is, you know, holding in that contrast of how they can't do anything. You're, you're actually the one who's putting all the labor into this. You're pouring the money. You're, you're picking your idol up. You're moving it to the next location. You're setting it up. You're propping it up. You're nailing it down. You're making sure it doesn't topple. You're the one doing all the work. And I, I think, honestly, that's kind of a summary of you know all that is idolatry and all that is people drifting from God is you're doing all the work. You know, make it look like uh, whatever you want to in the end. It, you know, there is no real power behind it. There is no real strength to rely upon. It's you doing these things uh, yourself. You know, once again, Isaiah is pointing out the irony and the stupidity of idolatry, how they have the living God to fall upon. Remember this and show yourselves, men. Recall to mind, O transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God. There's no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Remember, you know, you're going to find, he says it, you know, manly strength in remembering. Forgetfulness is a terrible thing. Um, you know, uh, 
heard that joke years ago where the old guy meets up with one of his old friends and they're just talking about all of their physical ailments and how they're getting older and you know one of them says you know the worst thing is can't remember a thing just, I, I forget everything now and his buddy says well you know i i have a doctor that's completely cured that i, I had really big problems with it it's gone now and i said no way you have no memory problems none whatsoever how'd you do that it's a word association thing you just have to force yourself <clears throat> when you know you need to remember something just build a word association thing as to you know where your keys are or what the phone number is it takes a little more time but it works really well really man so this doctor he trained you in this yeah yeah so who is this doctor can i be his patient how does that accomplish oh the doctor right um oh no wait no it was uh it was a flower it was like a it was like a red flower and it had thorns the guy says dr rose rose yeah rose what was the name of that doctor lame i know <clears throat> remembering the things we forget people you know, you, you see them walking with the Lord, see them five years later, and they have forgotten. They've abandoned. They're not retaining the things of the Lord. They're allowing things to escape their mind. You talk to people that have fallen away from the Lord, and you say, you know, what about this? What about that? What about this time? And their recollection is as though it didn't occur, they don't remember, or it's not as impactual as it was at one time. You know, I, I, you guys have heard me promote journaling um, many times. You know, I, I have a host of different journals that I keep around. I don't journal daily, and I journal the important things, you know, negative or positive. Put them into record, and particularly prayer, journaling what I'm praying about, because you also then record the answers when the answers come and when you review it when you remind yourself of it when you open the book up and you begin to look oh on that date that happened you you very often right you don't have to even go find where you wrote down the answer to that prayer that might have come months later just reading it and being reminded of when those things were transpiring causes you to remember how the lord answered those things R recall to mind the old transgressors, you know, make yourselves like men. Be strong in the things that the Lord has done. Declare the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasures. You know, this, this idea amongst the unbelievers of how they're going to do something. You think about what James is saying in the book of James, uh, you know, don't say, that you're going to go to this city or that city, buy, sell, and trade money. Rather say, if it be the Lord's will, then we will go and spend a year there and do whatever. If it be the Lord's will, make your plans. You know, aim at the target. You know, try to hit the goal, but at the same time, you know, declaring how a thing is going to turn out. Every one of us should have learned by now. That's impossible, but we we still do it, right? I am gonna. 
you know, collect this much money and, you know, involve myself in that thing over there and it's going to result in ABC and, you know, a few months down the road, you haven't even gotten to step one. You're off on another direction in course. Life has led you to a different place. If it be the Lord's will, then we will do this or that, buy, sell, trade, prosper. So being careful, you know, not to declare things beyond our own capability. Importance of memory. A couple of things that came up in this, remembering what the Lord has done. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that communion explanation by Paul, beginning at verse 24, when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. And here's the punchline, right? Do this in remembrance of me. 25 continues in the same manner. He also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Very important that we spend the time to remember the work of the Lord and what he's done in our lives. Generally, for all of us, his sacrifice, specifically journaling and writing down the things we've experienced with God. From there, we cannot turn this into a thing where we're declaring how things are going to turn out. Trust the Lord, follow him. Romans chapter 1, verse 28, in regard to remembering things, speaking of those in rebellion to him, the Lord said they do not like to retain God in their knowledge. God gave them over to a debased mind to do the things which are not fitting. When people don't concentrate and retain and remember the Lord, like our culture has done, rejecting him, then we end up doing things that are not fitting. The, the whole, the individual or the whole nation uh, will become corrupt as a result of not retaining the knowledge of God. And I like how that passage in Romans states that because it implies that sort of naturally from the beginning, we all have a knowledge and an understanding of God and who he is, that we are purposely not keeping that understanding and that knowledge for ourselves. They did not retain God in their knowledge. Back in Isaiah chapter 46, uh, looking at verse 11, calling a bird of prey from the nest, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. So this calling a bird of prey from the east, a man who executes my counsel, is another reference uh, to Cyrus. And again, written hundreds of years before the man is even born. You know, he, he became known as the bird of prey from the east, the Medo-Persian Empire. And, you know, this, this was a commonly held reference uh, to him as far as his military capabilities and strength. So now, you know, imagine that, you know, Isaiah is written about you. And now, you know, hundreds of years later, you're on the scene and you're realizing this. And even like your nicknames and the catchphrases they use for you are 
are you know being referenced by the prophet hundreds of years before you're born. Remarkable, obviously. 46.12, listen to me, you stubborn-hearted who are far from righteousness. Now, I guess um, take the moment to talk about righteousness because, you know, there's the misunderstanding sometimes, even in Christianity, that righteousness is equal to arrogance. You know, we say things like, oh, you know, this guy self-righteous, that person's, you know, you know, self-righteousness there, you know, arrogant is what we're implying. Righteousness is actually a very simple thing. Um, it is, you know, just as maybe we think about, but the root of the understanding is that an individual is right with God and right with their fellow man. And by being right with God and right with man, then we have righteousness. It's not that you know, like the hypocrites of Jesus' day where he's preaching against them so hard and, you know, pronouncing woes upon them because they're fake and yet got this whole religious, you know, costume that they're wearing all the time. It's not that at all, right? That would, in fact, be unrighteousness. You know, their self-righteous hypocrisy has nothing associated with true righteousness. Righteousness, to be right with God, right with man. So hear it again. Listen to me, you stubborn-hearted who are far from righteousness. You're a long ways off. I bring my righteousness near. It shall not be far off. My salvation shall not linger. It's, it's not going to take a long time for my salvation to get here. It's not in a faraway place or a faraway time. And I will place salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. God's timing is always perfect. You know, as we are looking around and seeing the world and thinking unrighteousness, you know, and longing for salvation and longing for these things to take place, God is once again assuring us, you know, things are not as far off as they feel. You know, the, you know, the return of Jesus Christ right now is perhaps is not as far away as our broken hearts feel like. And we look around at the wickedness of the world and think, you know, how long is this going to go on? You know, somebody suggests a hundred years and we kind of like roll our eyes and think, good Lord, a hundred years? You know, could that be? Maybe so. And we all know the answer why. Because God is patient, not willing anyone to perish, right? You know, so, so however much time, if it's three more seconds, that's, God's prerogative. If it's a long time, his timing's still perfect. You know, don't have to sit around and whine and cry about, oh, you know, I would have been righteous if only I had seen, you know, how close salvation was or how near these things were going to unfold. Not at all. God is saying, you know, righteousness should come from your proximity to me, not your proximity to an occasion, right? You know, there's, you know, that attitude amongst certain people about you know, the rapture and end times things, you know, that sort of that, you know, if I see it, I'll believe it attitude. Oh, I'm a Christian. Oh, I go to church. But, you know, I don't find a, a big need to live out the Christian life because, I mean, they've been saying this forever about Jesus' return. The proximity is in relationship. 
you know, time is a very different thing. The Lord is saying it's not far off. It's always near. 47 verse 1. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. So this is straight up God is giving us this picture of Babylon as uh, you know a humiliated woman. That's that's the the uh, sort of personification that's being given to Babylon here. Come and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne. Um, you know, in these cultures, um, it was sometimes very undignified to sit on the ground. You know, no matter where you were, you would find a log to sit on. You would find a stone to sit on. You would find, you know, anything to lean back, rest upon, sit down upon. But don't sit on the ground. It, it was thought to be completely undignified. That's something that you would force a slave to do. You know, he's working with you, carrying your load, traveling. You come to a place where everybody else sits down, refreshes themselves, you know, gets a drink of water, waits, finds a rock, sits on the cart, whatever it is. You know, the, the slave was ordered to sit on the ground. You know, no comfort, no uh, place of dignity here. Oh, you're, you know, the virgin daughter of the great Babylon. Sit on the ground uh, without a throne. You don't get any place of dignity, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no more be called tender or delicate. And the idea of tender is like beautiful. You'll no longer be called beautiful and delicate. Take the millstones and grind meal. You know, get, get rid of your state of royalty and start doing the work of a housemaid. Start grinding out your own flour. Stop waiting for people to bring you meals. Start preparing them for others. Remove your veil, you know, the, the, the one that would have protected her dignity and indicated that she was still a virgin and available for, you know, marriage and any suitor that might come along. Get, get rid of that. Throw your veil away. Take off the skirt you know, the, the idea of the longer robe that, you know, those who are well off would wear. Uncover the thigh. Uh, you know, move into working class garments. You know, no longer are you going to be thought of as royalty. Pass through the rivers. Now, this is the idea, the whole picture of you've become a slave. Babylon, which conquered nations and took slaves, you are now the nation which is going to become slave. So, you know, strip yourself of all these good things, pass through the, the, the rivers, your nakedness shall be uncovered. Yes, your shame will be seen. I will take vengeance and I will not arbitrate with a man. Straight forward, Babylon, as I said, humiliated, brought into slavery, the humiliation God is going to impose on Babylon is exactly the humili humiliation that Babylon put uh, Judah and Jerusalem through. When God humbles Babylon, he is taking vengeance for what they've done to his people, and he won't be talked out of his judgment. 
No, no arbitration between me and anyone. This is a set thing. Now, in verse uh, 4, it says, As for our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, the Holy One of Israel. This uh, reference to Redeemer is the kinsman Redeemer. So the Guel who's going to provide. So you go back to the Old Testament and look at the Leverite marriage. Some of you that are more familiar with this, uh, the book of Ruth, as she comes back and there Boaz becomes her kinsman redeemer. Uh, so the idea that you know the individual was married, uh, the, the woman, the husband has passed away, and now the family of the husband is obligated mo- usually to give her the next oldest son in line. Now, uh, this got detailed enough for the nation of Israel that like if there was an only child and he had died, then they would look to the oldest male in that family line. Who's who's the next kinsman redeemer who's going to marry this woman and give her a child so that the man who passed away, the child that's born to her, uh, will receive the inheritance that that man, the husband who passed away, was supposed to receive. Uh, that child will receive that inheritance from the family. So, you know, we as a people, uh, as the human race, have been betrayed by the one who rules over the human race, Satan himself. Satan cannot redeem us. Christ is our kinsman redeemer. And how interesting that will, while we're closer in nature to Satan, by nature, our behavior and our person is closer in, in all respects to Lucifer than it is Jesus Christ. Yet, through the grace of God, Jesus is being um, explained to us as the one who's closest to us in relationship and in love, that he wants to redeem us, that he would choose to, right? The kinsman redeemer could choose, uh, you know, to uh, marry, but there was a ceremony that uh, they would go through. If someone refused, then he would have to take off his shoe and give it to the woman, and then she was allowed to spit in his face. Uh, he, they usually didn't do it, any of it. Rarely was the Leverite marriage even honored. But when this took place, uh, um, especially she um, was given the right to refer to that man, uh, and others would also refer to that man who had refused to marry her as uh, the man from whom his shoe had been loosed. And that you know, that was the sort of like, oh, goodness, you wouldn't even like take care of your family responsibilities. Why wouldn't you do that? It, it immediately, in the mind of these people, raises big questions because it goes all the way back to the promise of God. Because God promised them the land, then gave them the land. OK, promise fulfilled and now divide the land amongst all the people. And so they receive their portion of Israel as their land. 
possession. And that is a sign that God in the past has fulfilled his promises. Look, I have this land and he's going to fulfill all of his promises to me and this nation in the future. So when an individual would refuse to participate in this redemption, what they were, you know, in some degree saying is, I don't want to participate in the plans of God. So this shame would come to them. Now, Jesus Christ is our kinsman redeemer, capable and willing to redeem us uh, unto himself and make us his bride. So, 47 verse 5, sit in silence and go in darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans. And, you know, the Chaldeans are the Babylonians, so you're just getting this reference from a different place or a different frame of mind. Go, sit in silence, go in darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no longer be called the Lady of Kingdoms. So your you know, royal dignity will be taken away in your references. I was angry with my people. I have performed, excuse me, I have profaned my inheritance and given them into your hand. You showed them no mercy. And then he uses this example as the strongest indication of Babylon's failure. On the elderly you laid your yoke very heavily, and you said, I shall be a lady forever, so that you did not take these things to heart, nor remember the latter end of them. And again, uh, several points of reference here. Um, you should have been most compassionate upon the weakest of my people, and instead you showed a special cruelty towards them. You know, you heap the burden upon the young men who are strong and, you know, of the age of war and labor, and you make them work hard and put them to the labor. That, you know, as far as a conquering nation go, that makes sense to some degree. You know, in, in, in a wicked way, it makes sense. There's a, there's a logic to it, to to heap the burdens on the elderly, to make it very difficult for those that are the weakest and the most frail. There's, an, there's a special wickedness to that that the Lord takes great offense to right here. And what he's saying is, my people had sinned. So of course they needed punishment. So I raised you up. You think it was you that raised you up, but I raised you up. And what do you do? You turn around and you're especially cruel to the weakest of my people, and in the process, you're slapping these big titles of dignity upon yourself. I shall be a lady forever. God is saying, no, you're not. You know, I'm going to take this away from you. If, you. if you had looked at the end and the beginning of this, you know, you did not remember the latter end of them. You didn't think about how this was going to turn out. You didn't think about the cost. Of, of living this way, you know, is that not a common accusation of the human race? We don't count the cost. We don't, we don't look ahead. We don't, we don't look at those who have done the exact same thing I'm about to do, right? We don't look in the past and go, have other people tried this? And you look and there's a whole long list of people who experienced horrible failure and great judgment from God. And then what, you turn around and do the same thing? You're Babylon, and you think that because you're so cool and you're so tough as a nation in history, 
that you can just be the most wicked that there is, and that's that's not going to come back to haunt you. Okay? You're not you're not going to experience, you know, reaping and you know sowing and reaping. You know, God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, you're going to reap. So God is bringing His judgment on them and telling them, you know, that they're going to experience these uh, punishments. Therefore, hear this now, you who are given to pleasures. So there's a general sense of any of us that are given to pleasures, and we should listen and learn from this, but it's more a direct statement against you know, Babylon as a people. He starts out in verse 1, and that same thing is carrying through here. So hear this now, you who are given to pleasures, who dwell securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one else besides me. You know, so that's um, God at least saying you're trying to act like me, right? He's the I am, and there's no one other than him. And he's saying to them, you know, you, you sort of use this phrase <laughs> that belongs to me. You don't have the qualifications to use my titles and my applications. You know, you, you're, you're you know, standing around in your security saying, I am, and there is no one else beside me. And I shall not sit as a widow, nor shall I know loss of children. Now, listen, <clears throat> as serious students of the scripture, right? When you jump forward and you get into the book of Revelation, um, if you know, hopefully you know that God pronounces his eternal judgment upon Babylon in Revelation chapter 18. And almost the same thing is said by Babylon there. You know, I sit as queen. I'll not see any sorrow. I'm not going to go through any hardships. My children won't be touched. And God is saying, no, it's coming for you. It's coming for you big. So you think about it. God has been storing up his eternal judgment for this national ideology that was Babylon, which has now become the world, uh, God is going to pour his wrath out upon it. He's going to bring his judgment upon all that is Babylon. You know, philosophically, spiritually, uh, monetarily, uh, religiously, God is going to judge it. So the judgment that is pronounced here came upon them as a nation, but as their influence went out into the world and it continues on to this day, there's a future date where God is going to judge all of those elements of Babylon also, which will be actually by then, it'll be much more prominent in the world, uh, much more clearly defined than it is today. I shall not sit as a widow, nor shall I know the loss of children, but these two things shall come to you in a moment. These two things that you just mentioned, your widowhood and your loss of children, those things are going to come to you in a moment, in one day. The loss of children and widowhood. They shall come upon you in their fullness because of the multitude of your sorceries. So now he gets very direct with them about their wicked religious practices upon your sorceries for the great abundance of your enchantments. You know... Babylon was famous as a founding place and a breeding ground 
for uh, the occultic arts and practices. Um, and it wasn't just boogeyman stuff where everybody was getting one another all wound up about the supernatural. These guys were literally inquiring of demonic forces and making sacrifices and requesting their help and their assistance. Now, I don't buy into all of what I read historically about the occultic practices and things of that nature. Um, I read a publication in 1992. A friend of mine owned it about the picked men of uh, what would eventually become Ireland. So um, it's a little graphic in its description, but it's worth the understanding. Uh, the picked men uh, throughout the basically wild countries of northern Europe at the time when Rome was, uh, you know, still developing. Uh, Alexander the Great uh, went to Germania, and there he was met by the picked men who, as I said, would eventually become the Irish and even Great Britain. Um, they were Druids. Their leaders were Druid priests. They performed human sacrifice. They worshipped devils. They were heavily involved in drug use, um, you know, and all kind and all kinds of drugs, massive hallucinogenic stimulants, and you know, other you know, profound depressants near the level of poison. It's just they were crazy in their behavior and their consumption. They um, met Alexander the Great on the open battlefield. Uh, they were referred to as picked men because they um, tattooed pictures all over their bodies of their gods and battles and all kinds of, mostly honoring their gods. When they went into the battlefield, they would strip down so that they come onto the battlefield naked, tattoos displayed, and a giant sword in their hand, the, the Scottish Claymore, the five-foot-long sword. Madmen, they would just rush headlong into whatever invading line was coming at them. Alexander the Great recorded in his journal that the day was especially troublesome when they met the picked men on the open battlefield, that they had already encountered things that the men had interpreted as bad omens. It was probably just paranoia because they knew they were going up against these sorcerers who worshipped demonic forces. And Alexander recorded that as their lines converged, right as the battle began and the two lines came together, that demonic forces appeared out of the thin air amongst his ranks and started killing his men with the picked men. Fear swept through his ranks in seconds and all of his men turned and he and his men fled the battlefield. This is the only occasion that Alexander recorded having been driven from the battlefield. Babylon, its number of sorceries and its enchantments, very, very dark things that they were engaged in. Horrible, 
unthinkable, unhuman things. God is saying you're going to be punished for that. You're going to experience my wrath. You're going to experience widowhood, and you're going to experience the loss of children in a single day because this was your behavior, because you're so incredibly wicked. Look at what's said in verse 10. For you have trusted in your wickedness. What a strange thing, right? Like everybody clearly defines what you're doing is wicked. And they're like, yeah, we know it's what's going to save us. Weird. They're, they're literally relying upon that which is spiritually black for their deliverance. You've trusted in your wickedness. You have said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and knowledge have warped you. Why? Wisdom and knowledge doesn't warp people, generally speaking. It's because their wisdom and their knowledge was of wickedness. What they were especially schooled in was terrible things. You know, what they were all professors and professionals about was, you know, I, these sorceries and these enchantments that they were engaged in. He goes on uh, further here. You have said in your heart, I am, there is no one else besides me. So again, you're, you're sort of saying, I am God, therefore evil shall come upon you. You shall not know from where it arises, and trouble shall fall upon you. You will not be able to put it off, and desolation shall come upon you suddenly, which you shall not know, right? Babylon, Cyrus, Medo-Persian Empire, right? Dig a huge canal from a swamp right to the Euphrates River. Dig through the bank of the Euphrates and drain the river right out of its riverbed. Flow it into the swamp. It's going to overflow the swamp and return back probably close to its own path. Uh, you know, he, Cyrus doesn't care about that. He just needs the river to drain down low enough to where they're able to walk right under the wall of Babylon. They, they, they have left the gates in the river unlocked. They push through. Uh, they meet very few guards historically. We know that they go right up to the banquet hall and walk straight in as Belteshazzar is there uh, celebrating his conquest. And honestly, he's celebrating his conquest over God. He... he knows that the Medo-Persian Empire is outside his walls and he chooses to throw up Hardy. And he calls for the articles of gold and silver that were part of the Jewish temple to be brought in so that he and his ladies and lords can eat and drink from the articles of worship that had been in the house of God. They're living in defiance of God and his power. And Cyrus walks right into their banquet hall. Conquered, game over, done, put to death in a single moment. No massive long siege, no years of negotiations and starvation and long drawn out, anything. Just one night, the brilliant tactical work of one man. And he shows up inside 
you know, their uh, governmental banquet hall and conquers them. Uh, 47.12, stand now with your enchantments. Yeah. God is essentially saying once the judgment comes, your temptation is going to be to throw the sorceries and the enchantments away and not look guilty. You know, what's in your hand? Nothing. You know, sort of attitude. And God is saying, no, you're going to stand with your enchantments and the multitude of your sorceries in which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you will be able to profit. Perhaps you will prevail. No, you're, you're going to have to actually stand up. You know, I think of those, you know, the priests of Baal who came out against Elisha and he's there, you know, egging them on as they're cutting themselves and throwing themselves on the altar and screaming, wailing and going on. And he, he's saying, you're going to have to stand right here and make a display, make a show of your strength, you know, your enchantments, your sorceries. Go ahead, do your trick. Let's let's see if you're able to deliver yourself. You know, do you have a rabbit in the hat? You know, perform your trick. See, see if somehow these enchantments and these sorceries are going to help you in this nothing. Defeated. That's what the Lord is saying to them. You are wearied in the multitude of your counsels. Let now the astrologers the stargaze, stargazers and the monthly prognosticators stand up and save you from what shall come upon you. You know, these guys predict the future. They know how everything's going to unfold. Let them come up here and steer the course of how things are going to transpire. The, the thing that's most disheartening for me when I read these passages, you guys, is all I see in this is, as a nation, how much we're like Babylon. Yeah. It, it would be nice if we could look at it differently. There's certainly a remnant in this nation. There's no doubt about that. You know, through all the denominations and all the churches, there is a profound number of true believers. Um, that, you know, I believe that to be true. I've seen that uh, firsthand. Uh, but for the most part, as a nation... I think we're more rebellious than Babylon. We're murderous, hate-filled, deceitful, criminal nation, and uh, yet claiming to be the most Christian nation in the world. You know, stand up, show us, show us how it's going to work. Okay, you know, modern church, modern America. Go ahead, use all of your gadgets, your gizmos, uh, your your methods, and let's see if you can deliver yourself. Not going to be able to. Judgment is coming for us. Get guaranteed. Guaranteed. Judgment is coming for this nation. Right? We, we have the beautiful promise of Jesus Christ that as a people, we could experience the judgment by throwing ourselves upon Jesus, upon the rock. Right? We could. You know, it's still going to be judgment. There's a brokenness that comes with the process. So... We could experience it that way. I don't think it's coming that way for us. I think as a people, we're too rebellious. I think as a nation, we're too stubborn. You know, a collective whole, the greater picture of who we are as a people, 
I think that has to be judged. I think that has to be punished. I don't foresee that there will be, you know, revival. I, I long for it. I pray for it. I hope for it. It's possible. Is it coming? When I look around at the behavior of our nation, I don't think so. I don't I don't see the nation falling on its face, begging forgiveness, changing its ways. You know, I certainly have seen countless individuals do that, you know, amongst the remnant, which we've, you know, referenced several times now, but as a whole, I don't see this nation doing that. So let all of these astrologers, star, astrologers, stargazers, prognosticators stand up and see if they can do anything about your circumstances. Behold, they shall be as stubble. The fire shall burn them. And they shall not deliver themselves from the power of the flame. It shall not be a coal to be warmed by, nor a fire to sit before. The fiery judgment, God, is, it's, it's almost, especially this last little statement, it's almost like a smug statement from God. You know, there's a massive judgment, judgmental fire coming that's going to burn up God's enemies like stubble. It's not going to be a fire to roast marshmallows over. You know, you're not going to warm yourself. You're not going to be comforted by the fire that is coming. It's, it's going to be unthinkably destructive, is what God is saying. You know, when Peter is telling us in the New Testament that the day of the Lord is going to come and all things are going to be burned up, even the elements, right? Like your periodic, you know, table, literally. That's, that's what Peter is saying. The, the very elements themselves will burn. You know, there was a time in history where that wasn't possible. From a human standpoint, it would have had to have been God actually, you know, causing. Now, we've proven that it's very possible. Whether God does it or we do it, we have, I think it's right now, there's something like a 60-world extinction arsenal nuclear weapons we can destroy the surface of the earth 60 times over yeah. one is just clearly not enough you know, it's crazy you know, you've got um submarines uh, right now that carry various numbers of missiles so you know you take like uh, some of the Los Angeles class that, you know, was carrying. We have bigger stuff now, uh, but, you know, you, you look at a submarine that's uh, carrying, uh, you know, 20 individual nuclear weapons on board, and each one is capable of targeting. Uh, each missile has multiple warheads in it, and it's capable of targeting 10 cities, one missile. You know, you got 20 on board each one capable of targeting 10 cities apiece. Surface, deploy, submerge. All over the world. Each one of those missiles has, you know, 40 times the explosive power of what went off in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. 
We just burn this planet to a cinder. You guys know that fallout, you know, the, the poisonous effects of the atmosphere that fall back to the ground uh, after a nuclear explosion, most of that that falls back to the ground as fallout is the burned atmosphere. That, that when the explosion goes off and rips through the atmosphere and burns the oxygen and all that is in the nitrogen that's in the air, then all of that radioactive ash that's falling, a greater percentage of it is literally the burned elements of the air. When Peter is telling us that the, the elements will burn with a fervent heat, that's frightening. That, you know, the Lord is, you're not, you're not going to be cooking marshmallows over this fire. You're not going to be warming yourself next to this blast that is going to lay waste to the whole world, whether men do it or whether God does it. The whole, the point is, it's possible, right? If God triggers, you know, when they, you guys know that when they detonated the first nuclear weapon, um, they had no idea whether that chain reaction was going to stop. For real. No idea at all. They, they knew the mathematical yield and the possibility that it was going to, the process was going to slow down. And it's, um, it's sort of a, a process of um, attrition, you know, that as it consumes the, the, the molecules in the nuclear matter, it dissipates itself. They had no idea if that was going to stop. Trigger the reaction so that molecules inside atoms are flying apart and destroying everything, all other atomic structures around them. They had no idea if that was going to stop. Trigger the event, burn the whole world. They did it anyway. That's what's most remarkable. They pulled the trigger. Yeah. I have no idea if we're going to kill the whole world right now or not, but push the button anyway. This is the level of suicidal behavior that the human race is given to. All for what? So we can have the most powerful weapon in the world. We may kill the entire population of the planet all at once, but if we don't, we'll have the most powerful weapon in all the world. Go ahead, push the button. This is the arrogance of the human race. This is where we're at. This is the type of thing that money does. You're not going to warm yourself by that level of fire in God's judgment. So to close verse 15, thus shall they be to you with whom you have labored, your merchants from your youth. They shall wander each one to his quarter. No one shall save you. No one shall save you. What a horrible closing statement. No one's going to save Babylon. No one's going to save that world system of things. Um, think about how carefully the Lord worded verse 15 as the Holy Spirit was working through Isaiah. Uh, they shall be to you with whom you have labored. Your merchants from your youth, they shall wander each one to his own corner. Uh, this is a prominent condemnation of materialism. You as a nation, you as a people, are known uh, for money and materialism. Now, um, there is a great hatred today, a growing hatred for uh, the people of Israel. And um, in particular, one of the things that keeps coming up and I've even heard really gracious statements from 
politicians this week about Israel who talk about Israel and its control of the banking system and money. Well, understand this, that when Israel returned from Babylon, that's when they came back as bankers and merchants. Okay? They left Israel as farmers. When they got to Babylon, they weren't allowed to have farms or own land. So the method by which they increased their prosperity was to get into money and banking and merchandise. When they come back to Israel after this captivity in Babylon, the Lord has a great rebuke for them about how they're supposed to send the weights that you would use in buying and selling and trading back to Babylon where they came from. He has this huge picture of these winged female creatures and how they're supposed to take these weights back. But the, the point is that materialism, money, you know, all of this prosperity isn't God's plan for these people. Their pursuit of it is a thing that God brings judgment against. He condemns Babylon for it. And then once they return from Babylon with that behavior in their person, God says, no, that doesn't belong here. You got that from Babylon, and that needs to be taken back to Babylon where you got it from. So that why? So God can judge it. Materialism. Whether you're a wicked you know, Babylonian relying on sorcery and enchantments and trusting in your own wickedness to see you out of your circumstances or you declare yourself to be a Christian living in America if you are consumed by materialism God is saying that's got to go that needs to leave your life because you're supposed to be relying upon me not things of this earth so again great judgment of the Lord pronounced we'll leave off right there in verse 15 and pick up that chapter 48 next week so why don't we stand and we'll pray. Father, I thank you uh, for your love and your work in our lives. And I pray that we would be submitted to you, that you would accomplish your work in us. Help us to be in that place of submitted children, that we would be known as Israel, not Jacob, that our hearts and minds would be cooperative with you. Accomplish what you want to in us and through us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.